Part ten of the Praise of Folly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. The Praise of Folly by Desiderius Erasmus. Translated by John Wilson. Part ten. But I foolishly run on in these matters, though yet there are so many of them that neither Chrysippus nor Didymus' volumes are large enough to contain them. I would only desire you to consider this, that if so great doctors may be allowed this liberty, you may the more reasonably pardon even me also, a raw effeminate divine, if I quote not everything so exactly as I should. And so at last I return to Paul. Ye willingly, says he, suffer my foolishness, and again, take me as a fool, and further, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly, and in another place, we are fools for Christ's sake. You have heard from how great an author, how great praises of folly, and to what other end but that without doubt he looked upon it as that one thing both necessary and profitable. If any one among ye, says he, seem to be wise, let him be a fool, that he may be wise. And in Luke, Jesus called those two disciples with whom he joined himself upon the way fools. Nor can I give you any reason why it should seem so strange when St. Paul imputes a kind of folly even to God himself. The foolishness of God, says he, is wiser than man. Though yet I must confess that Origen, upon the place, denies that this foolishness may be resembled to the uncertain judgment of man, of which kind is that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But why am I so careful to no purpose that I thus run on to prove my matter by so many testimonies, when in those mystical psalms Christ speaking to the Father says openly, Thou knowest my foolishness? Nor is it without ground that fools are so acceptable to God. The reason perhaps may be this, that as princes carry a suspicious eye upon those that are over-wise, and consequently hate them, as Caesar did Brutus and Cassius, when he feared not in the least drunken Antony, so Nero, Seneca, and Dionysius, Plato, and on the contrary, are delighted in those blunter and unlaboured wits. In like manner, Christ ever abhors and condemns those wise men and such as put confidence in their own wisdom. And this Paul makes clearly out when he said, God hath chosen the foolish things of this world, as well knowing it had been impossible to have reformed it by wisdom. Which also he sufficiently declares himself, crying out by the mouth of his prophet, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and cast away the understanding of the prudent. And again, when Christ gives him thanks that he had concealed the mystery of salvation from the wise, but revealed it to babes and sucklings, that is to say, fools. For the Greek word for babes is fools, which he opposes to the word wise man. To this appertains that throughout the gospel you find him ever accusing the scribes and Pharisees and doctors of the law, but diligently defending the ignorant multitude. For what other is that, woe to ye scribes and Pharisees, than woe to you, you wise men? But seemed chiefly delighted in little children, women, and fishes. Besides, among brute beasts, he is best pleased with those that have least in them of the fox's subtlety. And therefore he chose rather to ride upon an ass, when, if he had pleased, he might have bestrode the lion without danger. And the Holy Ghost came down in the shape of a dove, not of an eagle or a kite. Add to this that in Scripture there is frequent mention of hearts, hinds, and lambs, and such as are destined to eternal life are called sheep, than which creature there is not anything more foolish, if we may believe that proverb of Aristotle, sheepish manners, 
which he tells us is taken from the foolishness of that creature, and is used to be applied to dull-headed people and lackwits. And yet Christ professes to be the shepherd of this flock, and is himself delighted with the name of a lamb, according to St. John. Behold the Lamb of God! Of which also there is much mention in the Revelation. And what does all this drive at but that all mankind are fools, nay, even the very best? And Christ himself, that he might the better relieve this folly, being the wisdom of the Father, yet in some manner became a fool when taking upon him the nature of man, he was found in shape as a man, as in like manner he was made sin, that he might heal sinners. Nor did he work this cure any other way than by the foolishness of the cross, and a company of fat apostles, not much better, to whom also he carefully recommended folly, but gave them a caution against wisdom, and drew them together by the example of little children, lilies, mustard-seed, and sparrows, things senseless and inconsiderable, living only by the dictates of nature and without either craft or care. Besides, when he forbade them to be troubled about what they should say before governors, and straightly charged them not to inquire after times and seasons, to wit, that they might not trust to their own wisdom, but wholly depend on him. And to the same purpose is it that that great architect of the world, God, gave man an injunction against his eating of the tree of knowledge, as if knowledge were the bane of happiness, according to which also St. Paul disallows it as puffing up and destructive. Whence also St. Bernard seems, in my opinion, to follow when he interprets that mountain whereon Lucifer had fixed his habitation to be the mountain of knowledge. Nor perhaps ought I to omit this other argument, that folly is so gracious above that her errors are only pardoned, those of wise men never. Whence it is that they that ask forgiveness, though they offend never so wittingly, cloak it yet with the excuse of folly. So Aaron, in numbers, if I mistake not the book, when he sues unto Moses concerning his sister's leprosy, I beseech thee, my lord, not to lay this sin upon us, which we have foolishly committed. So Saul makes his excuse of David, for behold, says he, I did it foolishly. And again, David himself thus sweetens God. And therefore I beseech thee, O Lord, to take away the trespass of thy servant, for I have done foolishly. As if he knew there was no pardon to be obtained unless he had coloured his offence with folly and ignorance. And stronger is that of Christ upon the cross when he prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them. Nor does he cover their crime with any other excuse than that of unwittingness because, says he, they know not what they do. In like manner, Paul, writing to Timothy, But thereof I obtained mercy, for that I did it ignorantly through unbelief. And what is the meaning of, I did it ignorantly, but that I did it out of folly, not malice? And what of, therefore I received mercy, but that I had not obtained it, had I not been made more allowable through the covert of folly? For us also makes that mystical psalmist, though I remembered it not in its right place, remember not the sins of my youth nor my ignorances. You see what two things he pretends, to wit, youth, whose companion I ever am, and ignorances, and that in the plural number, a number of multitude, whereby we are to understand that there was no small company of them. But not to run too far in that which is infinite, to speak briefly, all Christian religion seems to have a kind of alliance with folly, and in no respect to have any accord with wisdom. Of which, if you expect proofs, consider first that boys, old men, women, and fools are more delighted with religious and sacred things than others, 
and to that purpose are ever next the altars, and this they do by mere impulse of nature. And in the next place, you see that those first founders of it were plain, simple persons, and most bitter enemies of learning. Lastly, there are no sort of fools seem more out of the way than are these whom the zeal of Christian religion has once swallowed up, so that they waste their estates, neglect injuries, suffer themselves to be cheated, put no difference between friends and enemies, abhor pleasure, are crammed with poverty, watchings, tears, labours, reproaches, loathe life, and wish death above all things. In short, they seem senseless to common understanding, as if their minds lived elsewhere and not in their own bodies. Which, what else is it, than to be mad? For which reason you must not think it so strange if the apostles seem to be drunk with new wine, and if Paul appeared to Festus to be mad. But now, having once gotten on the lion's skin, go to, and I'll show you that this happiness of Christians, which they pursue with so much toil, is nothing else but a kind of madness and folly. Far be it that my words should give any offence, rather consider my matter. And first, the Christians and Platonists do as good as agree in this, that the soul is plunged and fettered in the prison of the body, by the grossness of which it is so tied up and hindered, that it cannot take a view of or enjoy things as they truly are, and for that cause their master defines philosophy to be a contemplation of death, because it takes off the mind from visible and corporeal objects, than which death does no more. And therefore, as long as the soul uses the organs of the body in that right manner it ought, so long it is said to be in good state and condition. But when, having broken its fetters, it endeavours to get loose, and essays, as it were, a flight out of that prison that holds it in, they call it madness. And if this happens through any distemper or indisposition of the organs, then, by the common consent of every man, tis downright madness. And yet we see such kind of men foretell things to come, understand tongues and letters they never learned before, and seem, as it were, big with a kind of divinity." nor is it to be doubted, but that it proceeds from hence, that the mind, being somewhat at liberty from the infection of the body, begins to put forth itself in its native vigour. And I conceive tis from the same cause that the like often happens to sick men a little before their death, that they discourse in strain above mortality as if they were inspired. Again, if this happens upon the score of religion, though perhaps it may not be the same kind of madness, yet is so near it that a great many men would judge it no better, especially when a few inconsiderable people shall differ from the rest of the world in the whole course of their life. And therefore it fares with them as, according to the fiction of Plato, happens to those that, being cooped up in a cave, send gaping with admiration at the shadows of things, and that fugitive who, having broke from them, and returning to them again, told them he had seen things truly as they were, and that they were the most mistaken in believing there was nothing but pitiful shadows. For as this wise man pitied and bewailed their palpable madness that were possessed with so gross an error, so they in return laughed at him as a doting fool, and cast him out of their company. In like manner the common sort of men chiefly admire those things that are most corporeal, and almost believe there is nothing beyond them whereas, on the contrary, these devout persons, by how much the nearer anything concerns the body, by so much the more they neglect it, and are wholly hurried away with the contemplation of things invisible. For the one give the first place to riches, the next to their corporeal pleasures, leaving the last place to their soul, which yet most of them do scarce believe, 
because they can't see it with their eyes. On the contrary, the others first rely wholly on God, the most unchangeable of all things, and next him, yet on this that comes nearest him, they bestow the second on their soul. And lastly for their body, they neglect that care and condemn and fly money as superfluity that may be well spared. Or if they are forced to meddle with any of these things, they do it carelessly, and much against their wills, having as if they had it not, and possessing as if they possessed it not. There are also in each several things several degrees wherein they disagree among themselves. And first as to the senses, though all of them have more or less affinity with the body, yet of these some are more gross and blockish, as tasting, hearing, seeing, smelling, touching, some more removed from the body, as memory, intellect, and the will. And therefore, to which of these the mind applies itself, in that lies its force. But holy men, because the whole bent of their minds is taken up with those things that are most repugnant to these grosser senses, they seem brutish and stupid in the common use of them. Whereas on the contrary, the ordinary sort of people are best at these, and can do the least at the other. From whence it is, as we have heard, that some of these holy men have by mistake drunk oil for wine. Again, in the affections of the mind, some have a greater commerce with the body than others, as lust, desire of meat, and sleep, anger, pride, envy, with which holy men are at irreconcilable enmity, and contrary, the common people think there is no living without them. And lastly, there are certain middle kind of affections, and as it were, natural to every man, as the love of one's country, children, parents, friends, and to which the common people attribute no small matter, whereas the other strive to pluck them out of their mind, unless insomuch as they arrive to that highest part of the soul, that they love their parents not as parents, for what did they get but the body, though yet we owe it to God, not them, but as good men or women, and in whom shines the image of that highest wisdom which alone they call the chiefest good, and out of which, they say, there is nothing to be beloved or desired. And by the same rule do they measure all things else, so that they make less account of whatever is visible, unless it be altogether contemptible, than of those things which they cannot see. But they say that in sacraments and other religious duties there is both body and spirit, as in fasting they count it not enough for a man to abstain from eating, which the common people take for an absolute fast, unless there be also a lessening of his depraved affections, as that he be less angry, less proud, than he was wont, that the spirit, being less clogged with its bodily weight, may be the more intent upon heavenly things. In like manner, in the Eucharist, though, say they, it is not to be esteemed the less that tis administered with ceremonies, yet of itself tis of little effect, if not hurtful, unless that which is spiritual be added to it, to wit, that which is represented under those visible signs. Now the death of Christ is represented by it, which all men, vanquishing, abolishing, and, as it were, burying their carnal affections, ought to express in their lives and conversations that they may grow up to a newness of life, and be one with him, and the same one among another." This a holy man does, and in this is his only meditation. Whereas, on the contrary, the common people think there is no more in that sacrifice than to be present at the altar and crowd next it, to have a noise of words and look upon the ceremonies. Nor in this alone, which we only propose by way of example, but in all his life, and without hypocrisy, does a holy man fly those things that have any alliance with the body, and is wholly ravished with things eternal, 
invisible, and spiritual. For which cause there is so great contrariety of opinion between them, and that too in everything, that each party thinks the other out of their wits. Though that character, in my judgment, better agrees with those holy men than the common people. Which yet will be more clear if, as I promised, I briefly show you that that great reward they so much fancy is nothing else but a kind of madness. And therefore, suppose that Plato dreamt of somewhat like it when he called the madness of lovers the most happy condition of all others. For he that's violently in love lives not in his own body, but in the thing he loves. And by how much the farther he runs from himself into another, by so much the greater is his pleasure. And then, when the mind strives to rove from its body, and does not rightly use its own organs, without doubt you may say tis downright madness, and not be mistaken. Or otherwise, what's the meaning of those common sayings, he does not dwell at home, come to yourself, he's his own man again. Besides, the more perfect and true his love is, the more pleasant is his madness. And therefore, what is that life hereafter, after which these holy minds so pantingly breathe, like to be? To wit, the spirit shall swallow up the body, as conqueror and more durable, and this it shall do with a greater ease, because heretofore, in its lifetime, it had cleansed and thinned it into such another nothing as itself. And then the spirit again shall be wonderfully swallowed up by the highest mind, as being more powerful than infinite parts, so that the whole man is to be out of himself, nor to be otherwise happy in any respect, but that being stripped of himself, he shall participate of somewhat ineffable from that chiefest good that draws all things into itself. And this happiness, though it is only then perfected when souls being joined to their former bodies shall be made immortal, yet forasmuch as the life of holy man is nothing but a continued meditation, and, as it were, shadow of that life, it so happens that at length they have some taste or relish of it, which, though it be but as the smallest drop in comparison of that fountain of eternal happiness, yet it far surpasses all worldly delight, though all the pleasures of all mankind were all joined together. So much better are things spiritual than things corporeal, and things invisible than things visible, which doubtless is that which the prophet promises. The eye hath not seen, nor the ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man to consider what God has provided for them that love him. And this is that Mary's better part, which is not taken away by change of life, but perfected. And therefore they that are sensible of it, and few there are to whom this happens, suffer a kind of somewhat little differing from madness, for they utter many things that do not hang together, and that too not after the manner of man, but make a kind of sound which they neither heed themselves, nor is it understood by others, and change the whole figure of their countenance, one while jocund, another while dejected, now weeping, then laughing, and again sighing. And when they come to themselves, tell you they know not where they have been, whether in the body or out of the body, or sleeping. Nor do they remember what they have heard, seen, spoken, or done, and only know this, as it were in a mist or dream, that they were the most happy while they were so out of their wits. And therefore they are sorry they are come to themselves again, and desire nothing more than this kind of madness, to be perpetually mad. And this is a small taste of that future happiness. But I forget myself and run beyond my bounds, though yet if I shall seem to have spoken anything more boldly or impertinently than I ought, 
be pleased to consider that not only folly but a woman said it remembering in the meantime that greek proverb sometimes a fool may speak a word in season unless perhaps you expect an epilogue but give me leave to tell you you are mistaken if you think i remember anything of what i have said having foolishly bolted out such a hodgepodge of words tis an old proverb i hate one that remembers what's done over the cup this is a new one of my own making i hate a man that remembers what he hears wherefore farewell clap your hands live and drink lustily my most excellent disciples of folly end of the praise of folly by desiderius erasmus translated by john wilson recorded by anna simon november 2008